As we were planning the program for this year's People Analytics Conference, the hashtag MeToo movement was unfolding before our very eyes. The word complicit kept coming up as we thought about organizational behavior. And so we asked ourselves, how can we best help our community, the people who are really trying to drive organizational change, to address sexual harassment in the workplace? How could we help these organizations see their role in the pandemic of sexual harassment as well as their power to change it? Our answer was Jennifer Fried and her session on addressing sexual harassment with institutional courage. Jennifer is a professor of psychology at the University of Oregon, known for her influential theories on betrayal trauma, institutional betrayal and courage, and perpetrator strategies. With over 200 articles published, this Penn alumna is also the author of the Harvard Press award-winning book, Betrayal Trauma, The Logic of Forgetting Childhood Abuse. She currently serves as the editor of the Journal of Trauma and Dissociation, and she is a visiting scholar at Stanford, where she also earned her PhD. Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Jennifer, I still haven't had a chance to tell you how incredibly impactful your session was at the conference. People are still talking about it and writing to me about it, especially this concept of institutional betrayal. Would you explain it to our listeners? What is it and how it affects us? Sure. Institutional betrayal is a very broad concept. It includes any time an institution harms an individual or individuals dependent on that institution. And it can be something very overt, like a government ordering genocide on some of its very own citizens. But when it comes to sexual harassment, often institutional betrayal takes the form of an institution failing to respond in the way it should, given people's expectations of the protection they would expect in an institution. So even so, when an institution doesn't protect us from bad actors within the institution, that's a form of betrayal. Yes. And if we expect that they will. Okay. So that's part of it. So if we don't expect them to, it doesn't hurt us in the same way. But if we have the belief that they're there to keep us safe, then it really hurts us on a different level. Yes. Yes. We found that there is additional harm to people above and beyond the particular experiences with sexual violence. If the institution responds poorly, they show more symptoms of trauma like depression, anxiety. Would you actually, that would be helpful if you could, when somebody's experienced the kind of trauma of sexual abuse, what are, what's its impact on them? Um, what are they experiencing so that we know what gets measured to see when it's made worse? Yeah, of course, not everybody has the same reaction as everybody else. And many, many kinds of reactions have been found to be associated with exposure to sexual abuse. And this includes, when I say abuse, really, I, I want to be broad there because it can include harassment that doesn't even involve touching, um, but is a pervasive pattern it communicated through words and body language. The kinds of, of negative outcomes that have been associated with this sort of sexual violence runs from psychological difficulties, such as symptoms of depression, anxiety, PTSD, to physical difficulties, increases in illness and um, difficulty sleeping, to difficulties uh, at work and and in life. So substance use, that's problematic. Absenteeism, disengagement from the work environment. Really just a a wide host of different problems have been strongly associated with exposure to sexual violence. So from an organization's perspective, 
the responsibility sounds like it's on two different levels. One is a moral, ethical one um, about not wanting these people to suffer any more than they already are. And then another one is to limit the impact on the organization itself. That's correct. It, it is not in the organization's interest to have people being sexually assaulted because it's going to pay a price in their productivity and their willingness to be engaged with the organization um, and they're probably whether they're going to end up staying in the organization. But then there's the additional potential cost if the organization responds poorly that all of those negative outcomes uh, seem to be exacerbated. So if an institution engages in institutional betrayal after a sexual assault, or sets or, or sets it up in a sense so that mm-hmm. the sexual assault's more likely. The people who have been exposed to that are more likely to have trouble sleeping, illness, depression, and so on. So before we talk about what the right responses are, what are the responses of an organization that further this betrayal? What does it look like? Well, so far the way we've measured it, and I don't think we've measured everything there is to measure here. So far, the way we've measured it is by looking at some some environmental factors that institutions have some control over that make it more likely you're going to have harassment or assault. So their um, permissiveness in in uh, say um, sexually objectifying, joking, and um, sexist commentary, and other actions are what happens after there's been some sort of sexual assault or harassment? How does the institution respond? And so a betraying response might be to make it really difficult to report, to shame the person who's been victimized, um, or even overtly punish them in terms of demoting them Mm -hmm. or firing them. So in other words, it's partly cultural and it's partly procedural. Yes. And you know, the cult, some of the culture, of course, comes in from the outside, but institutions have a lot of power to set norms that can be done through explicit policies, such as no posters will be hung that are sexually objectifying, to what I think is actually most effective is education so that people in the organization come together and agree that they want a community that doesn't include things like such posters. Where have you been able to find organizations willing to partner with you on this research? Well, I'm, you know, I'm still looking for organizations <laughs> that really want to get into the into the hard work here. I think so far what I've seen is organizations are are increasingly willing to talk with me, to invite me to come speak. I, I a couple of years ago I was um invited to speak at a big military, a US military base and I I took that as an incredibly good sign because when I first started to work on institutional betrayal, I had a desire to do research on military um, contexts and service members, and and at first the doors were not open. So I I think that things are changing um, and people are becoming more willing to engage. Sometimes I see organizations who haven't talked to me 
take acts of institutional courage and it's and increasingly. So that's very inspiring, too. Well, it was part of what I saw in our own audience. We've got all of these people who work in talent management, people analytics. Their jobs are all around how to help people thrive within an organization. And they were wrapped. They were so, I think it, they were so grateful to start to get some information about what they could do to help make a difference. And when I saw them really light up was when, in this context of understanding that an institution can betray someone who's been abused or harassed and actually exacerbate the pain and the ripple effect of the abuse. Um, in turn, there is this concept of institutional courage. Could you explain what it is? Institutional courage is, at some level, the antidote to institutional betrayal. It's the actions an institution can take that help people thrive and be healthy and, and to some extent, repair institutional betrayal that has occurred, or even, um, you know, acts of an employee that maybe at one level look like the acts of a single person, but they occurred inside the institution. The institution can do wonders by apologizing, for instance, for this, um, this event that happened that was so harmful. I've identified 10 different things institutions can do. I'm sure there are more, um, <laughs> but, but one, is, one is so simple, which is to start with complying with the laws that are on the books to protect people. And it, it should go without saying that you should comply with laws, but it is sadly <laughs> the case that many institutions have, I think, just not taken laws that have to do with protecting people from sexual violence or discrimination. They haven't taken them that seriously. So the civil rights laws and Title IX and Title VII. But there is also a danger in in, um, a compliance mindset. Mm -hmm. And and that danger is to get too too focused on the checkbox and uh, and comply with the the letter of the law and not the spirit of the law. So part of of complying with laws is also going beyond mere compliance and and continuing to figure out ways to really get at the heart of the matter. So that's one. Right. So Um, it's really internalizing the notion of doing the right thing. Yeah. And committing to it. And committing to it. Yes. Okay. And And so what's the next one? The next one is making sure that leadership and really everybody, but especially leadership, is educated about sexual violence and related trauma. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of ignorance out there about what is harmful and what and people will think, for instance, oh, the most harmful things are the most physically severe. Well, that's just not true. That's not the way psychological harm works. Psychological people can get very harmed, as I mentioned, by acts that do not involve physical contact. So another one is people are often ignorance of victim behavior and why victims might not tell anyone for a while, why their memory might be fragmented and so on. So there's a lot of education that can and must occur. And I think not just like a training tape, but actual education. The kind that takes time, interaction on both sides, um, has multiple stages to it and um, really anchors you and sensitizes you to the issues and the patterns. Yes, and I really encourage people to engage in the topic and take ownership mm-hmm. of it, which means some room to, you know, to grapple with hard issues and disagree and do the kind of things we do when there's something really important to us. Right. 
And one of the things that you've noted on this list is also about responding sensitively to victim disclosures. What does that look like? So people, um, you know, there's two kinds of poor response to victim disclosures. And one kind is I basically an ill-intended response. And in that case, what we need to do is call it, call it out when we see it. We need to understand what those ill-intended responses are like, and the rest of us, when we see it, call it out. Mm-hmm. The other kind of poor response is well-intentioned, but again, not educated. So somebody, for instance, may speak to a victim, and the victim describes being sexually harassed, and the person hearing that says, oh, well, you know, that was so long ago, or, you know, I'm sure he didn't mean it. Something that minimizes or invalidates the experience might be well-intentioned, but can be really harmful. And the great thing is that we can teach people how to be good responders if if they mean well. Mm-hmm. And so bringing a kind of fundamental respect for the validity of their experience is essential. It is. It's also really important to respect their agency. It's it's a, a frequent, well-intentioned, but very harmful response to take away control from somebody who's been sexually harassed or assaulted. So to say, you know, I'm going to go run with this information and report it to the police, or I'm going to go beat him up, or whatever it is. That that may come from a place of good intention, but is likely to be very harmful because agency and control is what has already been stolen from a sexual violence victim. So those who hear about it shouldn't go steal it again. What about the people who hear about it and report it with inside the organization, the whistleblower? Yeah. So um, on the one hand, I think it's really important we cherish whistleblowers because they are doing um, a a great gift to an organization. And our response of like, see no evil, hear no evil, punish the whistleblower is really counterproductive to the well-being of the institution. But it is a little tricky when it comes to this issue of agency. And so if somebody hears about a sexual assault in an organization, of course, it depends what the rules are in that organization, but it's, it's really ideal to work with that survivor of the event to make the report, not to not to take it out of his or her hands. So that it's a way of um, making sure that they're informed, that, that you have their consent to report, um, and the focus is more on reporting the perpetrator of the assault than it is the person who's been victimized. Would that be fair? Yes. Yes, and I'm really glad you brought up the word consent because I think it's really important that we, if we're going to say consent and sexual behavior is really important, it's also really equally important that we we require consent for how we respond to it afterwards. Yeah, this was one of the things, as you were explaining it at the conference, Jennifer, that it was such a big aha moment for me to understand that um, the experience of assault takes away your consent, it takes away your power, and that in the processes that follow, that can either be start to heal or it can be made worse, and that that's where yeah. these institutional behaviors become so important. Yes, absolutely. And people will, will say, they'll use even, even use the word betrayal. And I should say, people can be betrayed and not use the word betrayal. Um, it, it's a whole um, step to recognize that you've been betrayed. But 
But I often hear people say they feel betrayed when they report something and the institution responds in a way they didn't want. And that could be they wanted the institution to do something and the institution did nothing. Or it could be they wanted the institution to respect their privacy and confidentiality while they sorted it out. And the institution ran with the information. That was the amazing Jennifer Fried, professor of psychology at the University of Oregon and one of the presenters at this year's Wharton People Analytics Conference. Unfortunately, that's all we have time for today. I'd like to thank Matt Datz, who produced our on-site coverage of the Wharton People Analytics Conference, along with the amazing Emily Anton. Special thanks goes to Wharton Professor Cade Massey and Professor Adam Grant, who I was honored to have as my co-host, along with my very special guests on today's show, Mary Barra, the CEO of General Motors, Leah Fessler, who covers gender, relationships, and work culture for the website Quartz. I'd like to give a shout out to my beloved producer, Patty Hall, as well as my great sound engineers, Dion Simpkins and Daniel Bruno. I'm Laura Zarrow, and you've been listening to Women at Work on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, here on Sirius XM 111. Listening to Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania on Sirius XM 111.